Ladies, gentlemen, or what have you, I'm Orion Lavelle. And I'm Travis Mattingly. And you're listening to Tooth and Nail, a monstrous podcast, where on this magical occasion, we're going to be talking about some lobsterish chaps. Yay. Some big, meaty claws, as the SpongeBob folks say. We're talking about carapace. We're talking about... Claws. We're gonna get tentacles. We got lots of legs. Little shrimp faces, I think. Don't get it <laughs> twisted. We're talking about chules, is how we're deciding they're pronounced today. Chool. Chool. Too chool for school. Absolutely, absolutely. Too chool for school, indeed. And chools, for those of you who aren't in the know, they're a sort of aberration creature. They are directly linked to the old aboliths, those Cthulhu boys that we talked about way back when we started this show. Yes. Yeah, leaving all cards on the table, they're they're pretty neat. They're these somewhat lobster fish guys. I, I, I think I like, so I've been playing a lot of Hollow Knight lately and a lot of Dark Souls-like games, and these guys I can see fitting very nicely into that sort of Hollow Knight Dark Soul game in that. Yeah, absolutely. In that they're, they're very bizarre. They kind of have that strange silhouette. They look a little bit too surrealist to belong in anything even remotely realistic. Well, so, they, they have that sort of 80s choose-your-own-adventure weirdness to them <laughs> that I appreciate quite a lot. And I think that these guys would fit right into a campaign that feels a little bit more grand and hallowed and understated you know in the very rare times that DD can be those things i think that these guys would make good candidates to spring on the players in that dark souls way in that you know you have your party trepidatiously adventuring down an ancient ruin and then you just present one of these abominations to them without context and then you slowly watch the party piece together the lore of these weird guys in this weird place as they progress through the ruinous dungeon yeah and <laughs> talking about how they don't look at all like anything realistic this that is a sort of a departure from what we had talked about with our last monster the chimera where there were many parts of it that looked yes nearly photorealistic like yeah. they could be in the real world yeah absolutely. and suddenly this thing just <laughs> yeah it, blah, it goes blah and because it's one big blah as opposed to a third blah <laughs> It, it works a lot easier. There's no there's no dissonance between the mm. art styles with the in the same way that we saw with the Camara because the Chul is just one big weird thing. Yeah. Truth be told, the artistic representation of the Chul is probably the most exciting thing about the Chul. Beyond <laughs> that, yeah. the the lore seems fairly. It's it's hmm. Well, maybe that's a little bit too uncharitable the the lore that we get for chules are interesting and there's some neat little interplay between what the chul is mechanically and what the chul does in terms of narrative i think that on the whole i i like these guys a fair bit they overlap with a lot of other monster types that we see for for example as we'll get into it these guys are paralyzers in the same way that carrion crawlers or ghouls are but i think there's I think these guys are very much their own thing while kind of interplaying with some stuff that is familiar with D&D monsters. Yeah, I mean, like, a lot of monsters do the same things that other monsters do, but 
I think something that makes Chul interesting once we actually get into it is that they feel like they were made from the ground up to fit into one specific place. Mm. There isn't a whole lot of like a lot of the other monsters we've covered have been like, you can slot these into pretty much wherever. But the Chul very much feel like they have a place in your game Absolutely. where they should go. Yeah, there's no random encounters with Chuls. Yeah. You're pretty much got to go seek out a Chul in order to find one or stumble across one in a place where a Chul belongs. <laughs> yeah, without any further ado, let's on in. I couldn't come up with a pun. <laughs> I'll put it in post. I'll put it in post. What a- Just the sound of like one of us going. Yeah, or like dive. There you go. I just slotted yeah, that in after the fact. Dive. Let's dive on in. <laughs> so artistically, as aberrations go, I like these guys a fair bit better than even Aboleths. It's it's starting to sink into me that D&D does aberrations in two ways. You either have the fishy way that signals that these dudes are attached to the elemental plane of water, or you have the cosmic abomination aberration way that signals a far realm kind of creature, which makes a sense because that's how Lovecraft did it, right? There was only yeah. either the, the fish monstrosities or the cosmic monstrosities. And chuls are in the former category. They are definitely water creatures, and the chul that we get looks like uh, something like a shrimp. I'm guessing maybe a crawdad. I can't remember what it looks like. And Yeah, I was going to say crawdad. Yeah, it might be crawdad. I don't totally remember because I hate pretty much anything that lives in the water. Please don't make me look it up again. <laughs> it, it's the thing that has like the carapace head with a bunch of tentacles sticking out of its mouth. Whichever <laughs> real ass creature that that is, is what this is. Pretty sure it's like crawfish or crawdad, yeah. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Regardless, it has that as a head, and then it and then it extends outwards into a set of limbs. So it has four sort of. Uh, it almost reminds me of a half-life kind of creature. It has four <laughs> chitinous legs with two clawed arms as well, and these big meaty claws are big old whopper boys. They're definitely almost cartoonish in size. They're symmetrical and ridged and spined, and definitely not something you would ever see in real life. It has that sense of exaggeration for stylistic sake. Yeah, for sure. Something I really like about these legs that at first glance I didn't really like, I didn't see as much, but now that I've seen this picture and also a picture from a past edition, which by the way, in both of the past editions the tool was in, it looked pretty much exactly like this. Oh, cool. It has never changed. Oh, good. That might be why I don't get a weird feeling about the artistic representation of the creature in the same way that, like, I don't get a badass vibe from the chul. It just looks like a, <laughs> like that angry crab from all those gifts on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> With a knife. Yeah, it's definitely a you what mate kind of creature. <laughs> but, but yes, anyways, the, the thing I like about the legs is that if you look at the way that the body is shaped and the legs are positioned, the entire thing, if you cut off the arms with the big crab claws on them, it is basically in the stance of like a dog creature. Yeah, that's what I was. So, yeah, I wasn't sure how to put that, but you're exactly right. It does have kind of a canine quality to the way it stands. Yeah, where normally you would think like, oh, it's got these two big arms. It's sort of centaur-esque in that the body raises up and then it has two big arms, but it's more like these 
giant crab claw arms are kind of extending from the neck of this thing. Yeah, yeah. It definitely has two arms and four legs. And then a little uh, finned tail as well. Yeah. These legs that they have, they're two-toed with that strange dewclaw thing poking out the back. It does look very alien and cool. I like it quite a bit. I really love the two-toed feet that always on every... Yeah thing that has it it looks really neat yeah it does it looks science fictiony it does look like a nice cross section between cosmic horror and sub aqua in or like uh I, what's the word like underwater horror not not yeah not a lick not a lipic not a not a list horror <laughs> and not i believe but <laughs> yeah not alluvian yeah antediluvian there we go <laughs> they have a chitinous shell that extends around their entire body and a sort of tannish coloration to their entire shell and in this overwrought D tradition the boys are spiny they have ridges and points and hooks pretty much wherever the artist could fit them in this case <laughs> again because the creature is so stylized and bizarre and surreal it kind of works the thing has so many curving pointing parts that it does make it kind of hard for your brain to parse at first which is exactly how aberrations are meant to look yeah so it kind of does it for me. This overwrought D&D style, I think, counts as a pass in this particular case. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the art style of this thing really sells just what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I do think that there's... It's interesting that it also, like, has a couple notes that are almost insectoid mm -hmm. in the lower legs. Mm -hmm. It's... Yeah. I guess insectoid is kind of what we think of when we think of cosmic horror. Things have very sort of yeah. carapacy insectoid limbs. Yeah, they're like very obviously jointed where they are in that way that yeah. insect limbs are. How they sort of taper or like the opposite of taper. They kind of taper in the center of the limb and then widen out yeah. on either end to make the, the joints of the creature very obvious. The front legs have that, like, curving up hooked carapace thing yeah. that looks like space alien, like, yeah, yeah, insectoid definitely. legs. Yeah, there is uh, an insectoid quality to it that I think... And really I gotta say, I just really love the lobster tail. I don't know what it is about it. There's something... You know what I think it is? I think in my wildest dreams, I think the chul is designed to kind of evoke the stature of a dog in some way. <laughs> so, like, we'll find out in a second that chuls are supposed to be incredibly servile. And I imagine that chuls are meant to be the sort of dogs of Abolith's, right? Abolith's best friend. Yeah, they act as watchdogs, and potentially they just are the watchdogs. <laughs> yeah, of the Abolith Empire. It's kind of neat. And again, I just want to super hammer it home. Those big symmetrical claws are really awesome. <laughs> they look they like, really are. It looks like the Pokemon pincer is just ejecting from the arms of the chul. It's really cool and really otherworldly. Yeah, and like, I don't think we can sell how big they are. It's yeah. like, the, the it could probably chop itself in half with yeah. one of its own claws. Yeah, the claw part of the chul is as long as the arm part of the chul. <laughs> it's very neat. And then there's just those face tentacles. Yeah, and of course, you know, face tentacles. We should probably camp out on face tentacles. They have those little beady crawdad eyes and then just a mess of crawdad tentacles that poke out. I Or shrimp, I can't totally remember. I'm not super well-versed in... I try not to be. <laughs> yeah. It's, I don't have, like, the same hang-up. It's just I... They all blend together in my head. Yeah. Upon, like, an incredibly short inspection, I don't think it's crawfish. Mm. They do have little things sticking out of their face, but not like. Regardless, it is gross and weird. And again, <laughs> it attaches back to that thing that I say 
more or less every other episode where monsters that incorporate as much stuff from real life as possible tend to be a little bit more successful. And this is a, another stellar example of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The tentacles are extensive. <laughs> I, I do like how it just like totally not important but i do like how in the art some of the tentacles are like curling around and grabbing the other ones that yeah gives them like a real absolutely a real uh, actual natural feel as opposed to just kind of like an art tentacle look yeah it's supposed to feel messy and grasping and horrifying because that's what the tool is about it's about entangling things either in its big meaty claws or lashing at them with its as we'll find poisonous tentacles yeah yeah any other thoughts on the art style? Nope. I just likes it. I likes it quite a bit as well. In terms of the lore, what we have here is a servant creation creature. We've seen bits of it uh, in terms of creation monstrosities with Chimera and Belettes. These guys were designed not to be murder machines, but rather to be helpful. So the idea is that aeons ago, when the Abolists had their great empire, see episode two or whatever of Tooth and Nail for a little bit more lore, <laughs> The abolists created shoals from the crustaceans that they found in their domains. The lore seems to lean more into the idea that abolists were occupying the oceans on the prime material plane, i.e. just regular old Earth or whatever country it is that your D&D campaign is set in, and not the extended elemental plane of water. So ostensibly, the abolists just chimeraed together some saltwater lobsters to create these big old monstrosities, <laughs> which is interesting and gives context for why the chul just looks like a regular-ass ocean creature mixed yeah. with some regular-ass ocean creatures. It yeah, it really does. It has... How, did we discuss this in the Chimera episode where the difference between, like, aberration and monstrosity in the Monster Manual, how monstrosities are generally, like... The ones that are the cobbled together weird messes and aberrations are just kind of their own thing. Yeah, I think we I mentioned I remember it. talking about this in one episode. At some point, we may have mentioned it with, like, onkegs or something like that. Whatever our first monstrosity was, we maybe parsed out that line a little bit more. But it does seem interesting. Well, you know what I mean, though. Yeah, it's like... I, I think I know where you're getting at, is that this would be a monstrosity if it wasn't so aberrant in nature yeah 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 that's basically it yeah it's it makes parsing creature types in D, &D a little weird once you get into the lore mm -hmm. because you you look at this thing and you're like oh okay this is for sure just a monstrosity nope. and then it's like oh it's only an aberration because it has something to do with abolists i guess yeah they got grandfathered in there anyway the abolists programmed these lobstrosities with a servile nature and a degree of sentience they are somewhat intelligent and they bred the chul to be able to follow a set of specific directions, which, generally speaking, was to just gather cool stuff for the abolites. You just fucking gloss over the word lobstrosity, you monster. It's, uh, I, I think it's a pull <laughs> from the Dark Tower. I think Stephen King refers to a, a certain set of monsters as lobstrosities. Okay. I was like, how dare you not clap yourself on the back for lobstrosity? No, I, I gotta give that, credit like, to Stephen me King. Off guard on a deep level. I wasn't sure whether or not to play it up, but no, lobstrosity is not a word of my own invention. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome, though. I I fully endorse yeah, I saying it. it. Absolutely. If I ever if I ever put jewels in my game, you better believe I'm saying that. Yeah. So the idea was, abolists were capable of exerting their will over all the creatures of the ocean in their domain, but because they were bound to the waters in some non-specific way, they needed agents to enforce their will on the land. Consequently, they slapped together some lobsters and made these perfectly loyal chules, and these chules would gather treasure and magical items and, importantly, people for the abolites. 
kind of a neat touch that we get here because the Abolith Empire lasted eons. Jules had time to evolve and grew in size in accordance to the Abolith's needs with some minor genetic tinkering, it seems. So after the Abolith Empire crumbled due to divine intervention, the Chuls that remain scattered across the globe, and since servitude was bred into these guys, they continue to act in accordance with their Abolithian directives, and can still be to this day, whatever this day is, can still to this day be found guarding Abolith ruins and hoarding valuables and stealing people in the name of their old masters. Mm. So there's your adventure hook, yeah. should you need it. Lobster stole my wife! <laughs> Absolutely, and these guys, like a lot of our the monsters we cover are like, oh, well, they could, here's some adventure hooks you could possibly do. The Chules are like, here is the adventure hook yeah. for Chules. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely the one that is Wizards of the Coast provided. Though I do think because of the kick I'm on, if I were to use a Chul, it would be a surprise in that Dark Soulsy fashion that I enumerated before. Mm -hmm. Importantly, because Chuls were made in part to find magic items, they were endowed with the ability to sense magic naturally, giving them an innate capacity and urge to gather these magical objects that they sense, killing or capturing whoever bears these magic objects. Incidentally, the old instincts still linger in their brains, and should a Chul ever come into contact with an Abolith, the psychic bond that was created in Chul's between Abolith and Chul's renews, and the Chul immediately becomes servile again to whatever the Abolith's wishes are. This really highlighted something to me. I really wish there was a little index in the monster manual that grouped monsters by relationship in the lore. Mm -hmm. I think that would be really useful for dungeon building. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Like, if <laughs> grouping them not necessarily by creature type. No, no, because like, you can creature relation. Yeah, you can come across indexes on the internet fairly easily that are like, here are all the water monsters and here are all the whatever monsters. But yeah. I, I have yet to find an index that groups lore creatures together. And I think that's probably because how much the lore changes between editions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's I, I think that's a part of it. I think another part of it is like, unless you're running a Wizards of the Coast adventure, I don't know anybody who actually uses Wizards of the Coast lore. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. It's this weird pick and choose thing that I think is unique to D&D in that, generally speaking, everybody has their own continent or kingdom or planet that they run that is their own special little place. But everybody also uses the elemental planes or the celestial planes. Pretty much anything extra planar is... Wizards of the Coast stuff, but everything that is on the prime material plane is stuff that you've made up. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. I think there's a, a, a think piece in me somewhere about how DMs specifically for D&D do that. That is straight. I never really had thought about that, but that yeah. is 100% how my mind works, yes. It's weird, isn't it? The cosmology remains the same in most campaigns that I see, but generally I think it's speaking... It's got to be because the cosmology is the hardest part about coming up with something and with such and for the most part they do say the same yeah but i think like it's pretty easy to like pick and choose tiny details but the overarching cosmology is the same yeah i think another part of it is like all the forgotten realm stuff is not elaborated on so much in dungeon master's guide so you know in the dmg you have an entire chapter on here are all of the planes that are not the material plane so you have mm. relatively easy access to what the cosmology of D&D is, whereas I can't find anything about fucking Waterdeep in the player's handbook. Yeah, you've got to buy, buy like, the supplement books and yeah, stuff. Yeah, you don't, there's no map of 
whatever the fuck. There's no map of Neverwinter hanging out yeah, in... You need the Sword Coast Adventures Guide to get the Sword Coast. Yeah, yeah, and I think that is the general reason why we don't see more traditional D&D, regular prime material settings in D&D campaigns. Yeah. Plus, like, it's just fun to make your own shit. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Yeah. It's fun to mess with the stuff that's down to earth because... Well, frankly, I don't think I could come up with anything cooler than the crazy cosmology of D&D, but... Yeah, yeah, well, that's 30 years of bored nerds coming up with the weirdest <laughs> shit, so, like, I don't think I could come up with anything cooler than Sigil, either. The weirdest shit. But, yeah, that is, generally speaking, the lore for tools. We don't get too terribly much. I do like the the magic detect kind of thing, and I like that it becomes mechanically relevant, as we'll see very shortly. I think, you know, on the whole... They're not built to be interesting agents in their own right, but if you ever want to do a Lovecraft-ass Old Ones Ruin, these would probably be the best guard dogs for that kind of dungeon. Before we move away from lore, then, would you like to know some very interesting things about tools from past editions? Yeah, sure. Lay it on me real quick. Uh, the first, and I would say... Frankly, the most important difference is that they have nothing to do with aboliths. Hmm. In previous editions, they were actually their own sentient aberration creatures hmm. with their own kind of semi-intelligence that caused them to travel, hunt, set up dens, and create small communities of tool. They would hunt f for adventurers, and then when they would kill an adventurer, they would take a trophy from it and put it up in its lair, usually a skull. <laughs> and my favorite detail is that they would hang the skull of a creature. The skull would be empty, as in no brain. However, they would not eat it, because unlike other aberrations, brains are poisonous to chul. Huh. So what they would do is they would empty the brain from the skull and then barter with mind flares using their collection of brains from adventurers. That's kind of cool. I like that detail. Yeah. I guess they used to be a little more uh, intelligent. They yeah. used to just kind of be another aberration as opposed to kind of like a sub-aberration created yeah. by aboliths. Yeah. And I think I would have liked to have seen on the whole more independent aberrations. Makes me wonder why in 5th edition they did like a lore heel turn on that. Yeah, I... I think it, the the reason for that is because 5th edition from the get-go was meant to be elegant while still being nostalgic. So I think what they were trying to do was just try to compartmentalize or provide narrative links to as much stuff as they could to help the fledgling DM as best they could with stuff to populate dungeons. Yeah. But I agree, I would have liked to have seen a few more independent aberration types because as we have it, it's mostly just abolists and mind flayers and i don't know like fucking zorns <laughs> yeah but i think what they did with tools are kind of cool though yeah for sure i like before i even looked into what old tools were like i i'm pretty solidly on the side of these being solid monsters mm -hmm. yeah i think these guys are solid monsters as well i just i've found it recently interesting to go back and look especially with aberrations because it seems like they're the ones that change the most yeah <laughs> between editions it's interesting I wonder why that is. I really is. like looking back. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I think the idea is that what is aberrant has changed, and consequently the entire subcategory is 
experiencing a base lift. Right. I only know so much, so I can't speak to very much. I'll think about it a bit more. And on the next aberration that we get, yeah. I'll share my opinions. I'll look back on that one. We'll see that it's a total face turn again. Yeah. And I'll be like, well. <laughs> yeah. So look out, Grell. We're coming for you. <laughs> So mechanically, the Chul operates as a paralyzer kind of guy, similarly to, as I said before, ghouls or carrion crawlers. However, where ghouls have strength and numbers and carrion crawlers have spider climb and some sort of mobility, these boys have swim speed. And as John Mulaney would say, some of you are ahead of me. <laughs> the Chul is a category size large aberration with a chaotic evil alignment. Brief sticking point, shouldn't these guys be lawful? Like, what even is alignment? Right, if the idea is that these yeah. guys are perfectly loyal to the abolith empire and will still follow the rules of the abolith empire even after the ab empire's collapse mm, this i think that has to be a remnant of the old lore sure because the old lore they were they traveled the world through water systems they would just kind of murder monsters yeah they traveled around the like through the plains across any body of water they could to hunt right so right yeah still it's kind of dumb, but whatever. Yeah, doesn't make a lot of sense. Oh, fuck it. Alignment problems, am I yeah. right, kids? <laughs> yeah. They have a challenge rating of 4, a comparably high armor class of 16, reflecting their natural carapace, and a comparably low HP of 93. They have a 30-foot run speed and a 30-foot swim speed. They have average dex and wisdom scores. They have high constitution and strength and really garbage charisma and intelligence. Although with a five, they are technically sentient and thus get an alignment. Yeah, it's odd they... Well, okay, it's not odd they can't speak because look at their face, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Five, I... five intelligence is generally the, like, threshold for being able to speak in D&D. &D, yeah, so. and we'll talk about it in a second. I'm kind of grumpy that we're running into a bunch of... It can understand this language, but can speak because... Nah, fuck it, we'll talk about it in a second. Yeah. So they get a plus four to perception for reasons... I don't, uh, there's kind of a hunter vibe to these guys. Maybe this is another vestige from what their lore used to be. They don't strike me as they are now as feral enough to get a perception bonus. And in some ways it does feel kind of redundant because they can naturally sense magic anyway. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it is supposed to link into this gatherer role that the tools have, in which case that's fair. Yeah. I don't know. Or like I, the watchdog thing. Maybe yeah. a little. Yeah. No, that makes a sense, but. My more cynical guess is maybe this is because there have been a, a fair few monsters that get bonuses to perception when they don't strike me as particularly perceptive. And I think mm -hmm. that this might be that it might be a thing done purely as a way to justify characters that have stealth builds. So the idea is they want to challenge and reward these characters throughout the game. And the easiest way to challenge somebody who's put points into stealth is to create monsters that have progressively higher perception is my best guess. Right. For something that is even more obfuscated, Chules for some reason are immune to poison damage and the poison condition. And again, I don't have very much idea why. There's nothing in the lore or the stat blocks for either Chules or Abolus that provides any kind of context for why these guys have that immunity. And it kind of annoys me. I guess it's just because of their weird poison tentacles that's what i thought too but like carrion crawlers had a poison attack and they don't have any immunities huh i kind of hate it i am and i i feel like this is reasonable to say i'm of the opinion that if a creature has a resistance and especially if they have an immunity 
they should be very obvious or logical. Like, spell slots are just too expensive to waste, man. Like, yeah. if something yeah. is resistant to cold damage, I want to be able to logically deduce that very quickly. Yeah. But yeah, if, I, ha fair. if I had to grasp at a straw, it would be because, for some reason, because they have a poison attack, these guys are poison resistant, even though this is not consistent in Dungeons & Dragons whatsoever, yeah. which feels like Garbo. So, like, DMs, do me a solid and either really signal the fact that tools are immune to poison or just make it consistent in your world that anything that is venomous cannot be poisoned. Give it, like, constant poison dripping off the tentacles as, like, just a little bit of a thing. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Well, that, that would signal the attack. I want something, like... Yeah. I want something that makes it very clear that the chul is... can't be damaged by poison damage. I don't really know how to signal that. I don't know. The only way I can think of is to make it consistent in your world that things that have poison cannot be poisoned, and that's just something that... Right. You, you teach right at the very beginning of the campaign the first time that <laughs> a creature with poison attacks the party yeah call for a nature check if you have to the end <laughs> so these guys they get a 60 foot dark vision they have a fine passive per did you just fart <laughs> they get 60 foot dark vision yeah <laughs> they have a fine passive perception of 14 and they understand deep speech but cannot speak it and i really do think that this understands a language but can't speak it thing should be generally amended for the same reason that i gave with chimeras it feels more useful to me to have a creature be able to stutteringly speak a language and then telegraph to the players that there's a greater intelligence and structure to the monster they're killing than just not be able to speak and maybe the players guess that it can speak a language as they're killing it already especially you know especially deep speech yeah. Because deep speech is already, like, in lore, a language that cannot communicate complex thoughts. Yeah. Like, it, it doesn't form sentences, it basically forms statements. Yeah. Like... Yeah. If nothing else, it doesn't cost you anything, and it immediately throws a wrinkle of complexity into a fight by demonstrating to the players that the thing they're fighting is intelligent or invites players themselves to invest themselves in the lore of the area. I think, especially, again, especially with deep speech, it pays and draconic, really any like non-common language if a monster can speak it, it pays to have them be able to speak it stutteringly because then it gives your players who have chosen one of these extra languages, it, it gives them that little bit of like, Justification. Oh, a justification for me yeah. having done this. Absolutely, like, yeah. It rewards a build. Yeah, and it's just like that feeling of like, oh man, I have this one thing that can solve this entire encounter for us in a way that none of us had thought of. Yeah. And it's just so yeah, worth it to absolutely, do. absolutely. Super, super worth it. Super good. If nothing else, I think a measure, one way you can measure the goodness of a DM is their ability to reward your character build and language is just a really easy way to do that yeah. yeah in terms of traits the chul gets amphibious in that it can breathe air and water which is makes sense uh, the amphibious nature of the chul is why a chul exists in the lore <laughs> they also get sense magic which as we alluded to allows the chul to sense magical effects within a pretty big 120 foot radius of it as in the spell detect magic though the book specifies that this is a natural ability of the chul and it itself cannot be dispelled yeah sort of like i assume like the beholders eye anti-magic it's just kind of a yeah a spell effect but it is natural yeah as i said this trait in many ways obviates the tool's perception bonus since surely at that point the party will have at least one magic item by level four 
but one's mileage may vary and it's not often the case if you tend to run games where you keep the pipeline of magic items to the party pretty tight. But I was thinking, you know, since their perception bonus got me thinking about the rogues and the scouts of the party, I was thinking it might be a fun wrinkle in a chul dungeon where you let the players know that chuls can sense magic before they go into the dungeon and see if you can get the scout to disattune from all their magic items in order to scout out the area in a much more risky way. Like, <laughs> I'm going bareback. Don't fuck me, dice. Oh, man, I have to leave my cloak of elven kind behind. Oh, this ain't going to be cool. Yeah, yeah. For a rogue <laughs> who's been really relying on their magic items, this might be a really cool and tense segment in a chul dungeon. How, how big is the... Oh, my God, 120 feet. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Is it... Within a hundred... Oh, yeah, so it is like a radius. Yep. Oof. Yep, yep. Oof. They can see that shift for miles, <laughs> basically, effectively. Oof. Yeah, with so depending on the dungeon you've built, like, that's quite a bit of forewarning. Yeah, it, it gives the sense that if a Chul fight is going to go down, the Chul is going to be the person to initiate combat. Oh, yeah. And speaking of combat, in terms of actions, the Chul gets a multi-attack structure where they can make two of their pincer attacks with their big meaty claws, <laughs> or if they're grappling a creature, they can also use their poison tentacle attack in addition to their pincer attacks. The pincer attack is one of those auto grapple attacks, and as we often see, players beware, if a monster can grapple you, prepare to get reamed on the next turn. <laughs> the attack itself gets an above average for its challenge rating plus six to hit. It has a 10 foot reach, since these guys are big boys, and the pincer attack does a relatively small 11 2d6 plus four bludgeoning damage. On a hit, the target is grappled with an average 14 escape DC, and as long as the creature is large or smaller and the Chul doesn't already have two creatures in each of its big meaty claws already. Oh, wow. That's incredible. I didn't even realize that normally with large creatures, they can't grapple other large creatures. Yeah, yeah. They're really trying to sell to you that the Chul is a big, tough lad. Yeah, man. They're, they're really... Them, them claws, they're big. They're meaty. Have you not been listening to me? The, the claws do indeed look like they could grapple another chul. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We cannot stress enough the magnitude <laughs> of the chul claws. Imagine a chul chokeholding two other chuls at the same time while those chuls are chokeholding two more chuls. Oh boy. Not now, boner. <laughs> What's this? A chain of chuls, yeah. just like from the end of the dungeon all the way to the entrance. Chul mania, brother. Chul mania. <laughs> if the chul has a grappled creature, it can make a tentacle attack on that creature where the creature that is being grappled must succeed on a DC 13 con save, which is a little bit below average, or be poisoned for one minute. During the poison's duration, the creature is paralyzed, but it can repeat the save at the end of each of its turns. So it's one of those kinds of guys where the Chul can either use the paralytic tentacles to capture characters for a bit, rendering them inert for maybe a round or two, or use the critical hit provision of the paralysis condition to do fuck tons of damage to somebody that deserves it. <laughs> and this was probably something that I should have considered or mentioned when we did carrion crawlers as well. Once a creature is paralyzed, the monster can do really like a shit ton of damage to that creature really quickly. Yeah. And if the Chul should choose to do both pincer attacks against a paralyzed creature, that does quite a bit above the damage threshold for a creature of that CR in one round. Yeah, that would be, what, 44 damage? Yeah. yeah. Yikes. Yeah, <laughs> yep, quite a bit. But as always, you as the DM have control over what your monsters do. Don't yeah. immediately kill your wizard, is the disclaimer we often make. <laughs> and it, it's kind of interesting because it gives the DM something that we often laud 
in monster design in this game, it gives the DM some tactical decisions to make. So like the Chul has, once it has something paralyzed, it does get to make this tactical decision of, do I go and try to lock down other player characters and paralyze them? Or do I just really fuck up the paladin right here? Cause I know it's going to be a threat <laughs> later on. I love the idea of <laughs> a combat encounter with the Chul where it's like, a party who has already fought like one of the other creatures of this type like ghouls or something mm -hmm. so they kind of get what's gonna happen they get like a hint like oh we're paralyzed i i know exactly what travis is gonna do and and then instead of like grabbing them dragging them away you just fucking wail, wail on, them. on them with the giant claws snip <laughs> you're just like oh oh the oh the gnome oh he's in half oh Oh. Oh. Yeah, I do like that as a bit of a sucker punch as well. Because these guys, they're <laughs> not like carrion crawlers or ghouls. They can take a little bit more of a beating. Mm -hmm. So I like the idea of, like, if they've already done a carrion crawler fight, the party's like, oh, it's fine. It's going to be a chase. And then the chul just fucking beheads the fighter. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, I think that might be a fun subversion or twist. And of course, as we, you, you don't have to kill the characters no, for no. it to be a fun bit, but like... But 44 damage in a round is effectively <laughs> yeah. going to shake someone up. Yeah, in a vacuum, it's hilarious. Yeah. So. yeah. so putting it all together, it feels pretty clear what kind of a fight a Chul fight turns into. I think, to my mind, because the Chul has a little bit more combat ability than the other Paralyzer that we've covered so far, I think it's fair to split the difference between... Something like what we discussed with Aboliths and something like what we discussed with Carrion Crawlers, where the Chul probably, because it senses the party first, probably initiates combat with the party, charging at them out of the dark in the middle of this strange flooded ruin where it starts laying down grapples and paralysis on whoever has the best magic items. Combat ensues, where the Chul, as I mentioned, gets to make this fun little strategic choice. You as the DM get to make this fun little strategic choice of either locking down characters or beating the shit out of characters. And then I'm thinking that once the Chul is reaching the end of its hit points, that might be where, if you haven't pulled this trick already, the Chul does the whole paralyzed grapple, drags a character with him in order to escape, ostensibly bringing or kidnapping this character, bringing them to the center of this ruin. Yeah. Importantly, because the Chul has a swim speed, you could probably turn this into a, oh fuck, the Chul is making a break for the pool of water in the middle of the room. <laughs> Tieflings don't breathe water very well, guys. We gotta go get that guy. Charlie is unconscious. He cannot survive in the water for long. Yeah, yeah. I think that might be a fun little wrinkle. Similarly to what we discussed with carrion crawlers, where if you make it very obvious where the carrion crawler is going to try to take its paralyzed prey, you suddenly have a goal for the characters to rally around. In that same way, if there's very obviously a pool of water that the tool can swim down with somebody who's important to the party, you immediately <laughs> have a goal for the players to try to lock down this tool before he dunks down on the rogue or whatever. Importantly, it does... The half movement speed does apply to the Chul, right? When grappling a monster? I believe so, yes. Okay, good. Okay. So 30 feet isn't too terribly bad. No, no. You could reasonably design the environment such that the Chul isn't immediately just going to swim down with uh, whoever they have. Yeah. And I should mention, if you are going to do a chase, and I said this before with Abelis, 
water combat sucks. Yeah. If the Chul does make it into the water with the rogue or whatever it is that they have kidnapped, make sure that the Chul dies or runs away soon after any actual water combat starts going. So if the if the party does catch up to the Chul as it's swimming away, either ignore the shitty rules for underwater combat or just have the Chul die pretty quickly into the party catching up with it. <laughs> yeah. But as always, you, in terms of environmental design, obviously the more water and the closer water is to the Chul, the harder the chase part will go. You could also turn this into a Monty Mole kind of situation where if there's a bunch of interconnected pools of water, the Chul could play whack-a-mole with the party trying to go <laughs> from place to place. I would maybe recommend against doing that unless they're, unless you've designed it such that the Chul won't spend a lot of dead time underwater because nobody wants mm -hmm. to just wait around for a monster to pop up. I would rather just design the environment such that these pools of water can be used as an escape from the party. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, that's pretty much all a Chul can do. I think on the whole, they're pretty tightly designed mechanically. I, I still quite like that paralyzation gimmick. It's not boring to me yet because they're still minor wrinkles you can do with it yeah and i i think that it's a fun cute little monster whose mechanical stuff feeds into its lore feeds into its artistic stuff it's all very it's all a fairly elegant creature yeah absolutely and i having accidentally glossed over the entire like can grapple two large creatures at once thing in retrospect I absolutely goddamn love <laughs> this whole, uh, the idea of all of the combat that this Chul can do. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I feel like it bears mention the Chul could take two motherfuckers as opposed to just one motherfucker. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it is absolutely ridiculous. I, because yeah. most creatures just like, they can grapple one thing. And once they grapple one thing, their options are generally limited, especially this low CR. Yeah. Like the... Uh, was it the Onkeg? It can bite something in its mouth, but once it does, it can't use its bile attack. Yeah, that was that. The Chul is the opposite. It can grapple two big motherfuckers and then just continue to do worse things to them. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> awesome. Chuls are pretty cool and good. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I I, 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 I like B+, A-. minus. I like Chuls quite a bit. Yeah, I'd say A- minus for me. Yeah. I give it an A-. minus. yeah. You know what else makes you a good, solid monster? <laughs> That's not a good take of that. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our episode of Tooth and Nail. If you enjoyed what you listened to, feel free to listen to more Tooth and Nail. But if you're getting sick of us and our voices and our ways, it's allergy season, so our voices aren't super great right about now. So I totally understand if you want to go and listen to other members of the Nerdsmith family who hang out on the coast where there are no seasons <laughs> and uh, consequently don't have allergy problems quite so much. They, they ain't all full of no stuff like me. That's true. That's true. We, that's the little blurb with the little laurel uh, that, <laughs> that they put on their front page. They don't have no stuff. Yeah, not full of no stuff. Yeah. But yeah, feel free to check those guys out as always. Dear DM is always a good one. Monster Crush is uh, very thematically relevant to our show. If you're more into mythology rather than make-believe monsters in video games check out those monster crush ladies yeah and uh i believe 
WAND Radio has just, as of the time of recording, sort of revamped or re just kind of revamped their uh, their style and they're starting over something new from what I understand. And yeah, so if you want to get on... It might be worth on, giving it a check out. Yeah, if you want to get on the ground floor for one radio, check those guys out. In the meantime, if you super liked us, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play or Spotify or wherever it is you're listening. Or just shout it out at us if you know <laughs> us personally. Or just shout it out into the sky uh, yeah. out your window. Yeah, sky right druids until next time what's our creature comfort for the day get you one of those little hand exerciser thingies those little squeaky spring boys <laughs> such that you can get big meaty claws as well yeah work out your claws yeah work, work out, out your claws. meaty claws big meaty, <laughs> meaty claws. claws big meaty claws <laughs> god not now boner <laughs> have a good day